Okay, well, at least now it started recording, the little fucking bastard. What was that health check shit? And there's your cold opener. Welcome to episode number 11 of Grumpy Old Benz. I am Darren O'Neill coming to you live from a bunker deep in the heart of middle America, just outside of Chicago, Illinois, where the weather is getting beautiful. The White Sox still suck and the barbecue is awesome and the bullets are flying. And from the dreary and rainy left coast of the United States, I am. Who the fuck am I again? Ryan Bemrose. Hey, I I wish it was 60 degrees here. It would be a lot nicer. I would like to have the windows open, but that is no, no, not the weather. It's 60 degrees inside. It's 50 out. Oh, that's even better. And that bringing- is not the weather in Chirac in the summer. I'm jealous. Although we get sun, but I got sunburn and that all sucks. On today's show, we're talking about software updates and who better to talk about this with than a guy who worked for the big, bad Microsoft. And I know this is kind of a... Uh, This is kind of a pet project, an episode that you've been wanting to do to explore the pros and cons of companies forcing software updates down your throat and even beyond forcing them, the the concept that the software goes out the door in a state that you might not like to begin with. Well, like so many of my quixotic rants, uh, I, I really just roped you in on this one because I I've got this particular windmill I need to tilt at and I need to get off my chest because uh, a lot this this particular rant has been more than 10 years in coming simply because I you know, when when you are in the the death star working with the the sith there's a lot of conversations that go on and you're like I uh you I can't believe you actually said that do you really believe this are you that stupid the users are going to hate <laughs> this and I lose these conversations because of course I was just a lowly software tester and uh, I wasn't one of the big paid directors or anything. And then Microsoft goes off and ships a product and everybody's like, how can they possibly, how can they even ship this? Did nobody think of it? Well, some of us did think of it, but we got overruled. Well, the users are irrelevant. Meeting deadlines seems to be the big thing. And it's a, it's weird to me because back in the day, it seemed like once software was stable, they would add features, but security updates didn't come as fast and furious as they do now. And the interesting thing when it comes to Windows and everybody that's listening to this that uses Windows knows this. And hell, even if you use Mac, you know this. The software updates are now getting pushed to you. And when you're updating, it doesn't matter again whether it's Windows 10 or Mac OS X. A lot of times now, these updates are borking the computer, and this is causing huge issues for people who aren't dudes named Ben, who don't know how to get something restored, how to go into safe mode and do all this. People rely on companies like Microsoft to put out a product that's going to work, and they trust that when an update comes, it's not going to screw up their computer, but that's not the reality of it, is it? Well, I mean, there's there's risk of of introducing bugs with everything. This is why you're supposed to test your software when, when you ship it. You've got uh, a Microsoft at least always had uh, they had program managers and they had developers and they had testers and uh, the developers write the code and the testers test the code. And I'm not going to say that's the right way to do software, but it kind of describes the activities that you have to do. You have to plan. 
then you have to develop, and then you have to test. But I'm actually going to back up a little and, uh, you know, back in the day because we are grumpy old Ben's and we always have to have a back in the day segment. I wanted to describe briefly how software worked uh, when I was actually younger. This would be the 1980s. When you created a piece of software, that software had to go onto a floppy disk or later when technology had made leaps and bounds forward, the software went onto a compact disk, a little round silvery thing that that you can stick in the front of old computers, but modern computers can't even get them anymore because nobody cares about optical disks anymore. But the thing about it was we couldn't assume that every computer everywhere was connected to the internet. So when you wrote a piece of software, you had to make sure that you tested that software and that it worked correctly and as bug-free as you were capable of making it before you put it on that disk. Because as soon as it went out to the consumer, to the user, that was the software they had. And the only possible way, if there was some horrible bug in your software, the only possible way to fix it was to release a whole new version. And that meant printing a whole new run of disks. And that meant your company was going to be costed a lot of money. So when you were developing software, it made sense to test the crap out of it just to be sure that your bugs were low. Now. Fast forward 30 years from then, and uh, programmers, being humans, are lazy, and they now have this amazing safety net that says, oh, it's okay if I ship a buggy product because we'll just fix it in an update. And it's not just Windows. It's all software in the world these days, especially apps or anything that comes out of a, an online store. You just know, okay, you know what? I'm just going to bang out a source code file and hit F5. And if it runs, then great, ship it. And then if the users discover that everything is totally broken or that my thing doesn't work at all, then they'll tell me on the forum or the feedback page. And then, hey, you know, I'll just, oh, I'm sorry. I meant to do And you fix it and you ship out an update. And and the fact is that if if you get that update out fast enough, then only... 10% of your users ever saw that there was a bug. So, hey, no harm, no foul. And I didn't even have to test my code before shipping it to a user. That's frustrating enough with apps. But as you pointed out, when it's an operating system. Well, yeah, when it's an operating system, things can really go wrong. And there's no doubt that software companies now are basically using the people that are using or buying, in most cases, the software as their product testers. And that is not a good thing. Yet users are the product testers now. Users have been brought into the planning, developing, testing cycle. Users are now the last stage of that cycle. And I just put a little side note here for another show that I'm going to have to ask you about how you feel about software that you buy that requires an internet connection for you to even load it up and use it. Because I think that would be another great rant to hear from from you on that. But the Interesting thing was I had a buddy that worked for a company who used to do the software testing and stuff. And you don't realize in even the most simplistic software, how many different things could be done to it. The company he worked for uh, still works for does syncing software across servers. And you don't realize exactly how many different scenarios that this could be put into. And if you don't test every scenario before it goes out the door, you run the risk of borking somebody's data. A lot of times people, you know, again, the problem often exists between the keyboard and a chair. I remember him telling me a story one day about a guy that called up and he had two drives 
uh, mirrored and he deleted all the one of the drives crashed and all the data was lost. And he's like, well, then my backup, there's nothing on my backup. And he's like, well, do you not understand how mirroring works? Uh, If something happens to one, it happens to the other. So if it disappears on one, it disappears on the others. But that's another rant to figure out people understanding the software that they use. But he would talk about all the things you had to do, all the different scenarios you had to try putting the stuff through, because software, even very simplistic software, is not simple. And it's the guy that's going to do something. It's the one guy in a million that does something that you never expected to be done that could cause your software to melt down. And you should try to figure that out before it goes out the door. But as you said, a little bit of laziness, the fact that they have the internet now that just goes, oh, we need to push an update. We can just do that quickly. It is a whole different ball game than when you were putting software on a disc, sending it out. And then, I mean, it's weird to even think about that. When you said that, I'm like, wow, there was a time when software just didn't update itself. So I can see where that makes the programmers a little bit lazy. Maybe not the programmers lazy, but the companies putting the software out have gotten a little bit complacent because that safety net is just a little bit too easy to go to. It, it's it's a little too safe. Big software suites like Windows are literally the most complicated thing ever created by humans in, in all of human history. The uh, Windows 8, the last version that I had a direct hand in working on, had over 6,000 people working on the operating system and had hundreds of thousands of lines of source code. And there was not a single person anywhere in the company who fully understood the operating system. Everybody had to understand their small part. And we had meetings and meetings and meetings trying to understand how your part interfaced with somebody else's part. And you had to trust each other a lot. And and, and ultimately, it gets down to creating something this complex, uh, far more complex than than a human being can keep in their brain, is expensive. And if you do it right, uh, this is something that most software developers and, and people making software do not get, is testing It can be the most expensive part of the process in order to test fully. Well, it has to be the most time consuming, right? It it, it is. And, and time is money when you're paying workers, which is why I say expensive. When you are writing code, the developer of the code, and I understand I use developer and tester interchangeably because those were two separate roles where I worked, but a lot of companies understand it correctly. And the same person will do both at different times. But when you're developing code, the thing that you are keeping in your head, and don't get me wrong, this is difficult. I've done plenty of it. Uh, you are creating something and you are keeping it on the rails, on the the golden path of what is the proper interaction with the code. Let's make sure that works. And when everything is working correctly and your code runs through the golden path and gets from point A to point B and accomplishes what it does, congratulations you're done with the development phase. So when you are in a developer role writing the code, that's what you have to think about. You have to think about one user interaction, the user interaction that you are designing the software for. When you're testing, then you have to think about, and and this is actually an impossible task, you have to think about all of the possible ways that a user could interact with your software that you didn't come up with during the design phase. And... (laughs) Uh, that, that suddenly you're limited by the imagination of the person able to do the testing. And, and that's why, uh, developing and testing are, are 
different skills. Development requires very logical, strict thinking and coming up with ways of arranging instructions to make one thing happen. Testing requires brainstorming. How are all the ways this thing could fail? And let's see what happens when it does. And and like I, I said a moment ago, that is actually an impossible task. You cannot possibly make a piece of software or anything completely foolproof because the universe is so good at generating fools. And no matter how smart you think you are, no matter how creative you are as a tester, no matter how incredible your imagination is for what you think that this software might do, somebody will come up with a way to use it and fuck it up. That's the whole reason why updates have to exist. But there's always a line. Well, how much testing do I do? And that's where uh, somebody who is bean counting and and trying to determine your timing uh, is going to say, well, you know, we spent uh, 60 hours developing this feature, so we should spend about 60 hours testing it. And that's an, an interesting heuristic, and it's an arbitrary line. And depending on how well tested you want, that might be not nearly enough, and that might be way too much. And the problem, the problem I just described is why updates exist in the first place, because software has bugs. They are more complicated than a person can handle, and therefore, there will always be things that you missed. But updates exist because software has bugs, but the existence of updates has led software to have more bugs. Right. If you ever want to have fun, go to any page that shows you the log of changes in software from anything from there's a lot of online software that's being used, WordPress, Drupal, all the different plugins for these. You can always go and see as they go down what errors they fix, and you can go look at bug reports because you know, I'm mainly a web guy, so I have, and I have some very basic understanding of coding. But when you have a box on a website that says, enter your name here, and the box isn't set up because the coder was lazy or whatever, didn't realize somebody may put in an apostrophe because, you know, I have a name like O'Neill, or even worse yet, somebody's going to put in just some this random is, this characters. This is clearly your fault for having a non standard name. You understand that, right? Yeah, that's absolutely my fault. But if you throw in some just random characters as well, and it wasn't expecting it, you want it to fail nicely, not totally crash your server to the point to where they can get into your, adjust your PHP code or get into your MySQL databases and all that kind of thing. So this weird stuff happens. It's amazing to me how easy it is to hack some of this stuff. But I have to ask, have, have you ever performed a SQL injection attack on a server by entering your name? Because I know the apostrophe is a special character in SQL. Not knowingly, but if somebody didn't have a properly uh, uh, formatted box, I guess that is possible. It's interesting to me just on the very basic controls you get and the logs that you get from one of these WordPress, uh, I think it's called WordFence. They show you what people are trying to do as far as the injections and that on your database and on your website. And it's amazing the amount of hits that even our site gets the random thoughts site any site that's on the internet is getting hacked or trying to be hacked each and every moment which again shows you why it's so important for software to be updated but we also then have the problems of those updates can cause problems too but the question i want to ask from having again a very rudimentary i mean i took basic i understand you know the if then else and all the the basic concepts of how some of these computer code goes through and follows the instructions and all that. But from what I understand, coding, and it doesn't matter what language you're using, coding is very much still a personal thing, meaning 
it's like writing a story. Uh, each author is going to get there in a different way. They have their own style. They have their own word choice. Coding is not something that is a very simple. I wanted. I want to go from point A to point B, and every coder is going to have the same code to do that. They're all going to have their own style. So that adds to the problem when you're dealing with a company, I can only assume like Microsoft, where the software is so segmented, like you said, when there is a bug coming back, that developer that wrote that little section might be gone. The, you know, Somebody else is then trying to figure out what they did. How does this not just turn into a total mess? And how does the each coder's personality, the way they code, affect how all of these updates work well the truth is it is a complete mess and uh if if you want to strike fear into the heart of any software developer anywhere the scariest word in the lexicon you can possibly use is legacy that is the word that stands for the code that was shipped in many previous versions that nobody's touched in years nobody even remembers who wrote it the Worst enemy of a coder is the coder that wrote something two years ago, and that something has been chugging along and working, and you suddenly find a bug in it. Most companies will institute things like uh, coding style standards, uh, and and that in itself, if if we were a programming podcast, I would have multiple rants about coding standards. But suffice it to say, it is somebody near the top or or somebody by consensus has come up with here is a document and this document will show you uh, ways of coding uh because as as you pointed out creating software uh like creating anything really complex like creating a, a story is an extremely creative thing and there's more than one way to do it and in fact there's so many ways to do it that each person will through their own personal style come up with something unique. If you follow the the coding guidelines and the coding guidelines can be as as simple as when you open up an if statement you always put the opening curly brace on the next line indented by four spaces. That is an example of a coding style that describes how you format your code to design how people read the how, how people are able to read the code. Uh, and then it could be things like when you create an I unknown based interface, always make your destructor private. And if you didn't understand any of that, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> but it's it's a prescription that says there are 500,000 ways that you could implement this thing. And here's the way we'd like you to do it. And in theory, if everybody follows the coding standard, then everybody that it makes it easier to read the code. Uh, in practice, that works more or less in a lot of places, and uh, even in places that have a coding standard, uh, even in places that strictly adhere to a coding standard, having to open up code that was written years ago is a frightening prospect. There's <laughs> there's entire schools of thought that says if you have a legacy app that's been running for years and you find a bug in it then you you cost out how much is it going to be to open up that old ancient code and try to fix the bug without and here's the trick fixing that bug is easy what's hard is not introducing 10 new bugs that you won't find out about for 10 more years right because anytime you play with code you're opening up the ability that something else is going wrong or that's going to interact with something else that exists in that program exactly that you're not looking at i, I was going to say uh you know the the most evil person uh, that that could ever write code is somebody 2 years ago however the the worst offenders of that is when you go and open up a source file 
and you're like, oh God, what a stupid bug. Who is the moron who wrote this? I can't believe they did it. And you go check the change list and it was you. <laughs> well, so you've learned you were dumb two years ago and now you know better. Yeah. But I can see with all yeah, of pa- this understanding. If, if you're a programmer, past me was always a moron and future me is a whiny bitch <laughs> every time. That seems to make sense. And thank you for your courage. The question then becomes, how do you deal with something? Let's start with the operating system as a whole, rather than programs like Photoshop and that who are doing some other stuff when it comes to the update uh, procedures that they use. How do you feel about the Microsoft OS X? Actually, Linux pretty much does the same thing as well, don't they? Where when updates come, did you just say Microsoft OS X, Microsoft or OS X, okay. so Windows or Apple's OS X, Linux, they all have updates. Do they treat them really that much differently as far as how they force them upon you? Well, uh, yes, the the philosophical differences. Uh, and OK, I I don't use OS X. That's not a thing that I do. Um, I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to start an anti-Apple rant, but uh, my familiarity was with Windows and with Linux. And so I'm going to describe the difference between those two windows and in particular windows 10 anybody who uses windows 10 understands that it really doesn't give you a choice about updates it just says you know what we've got an update and you're taking this and uh so so go ahead and reboot thank you uh whatever it is that you were doing is not as important as updating and uh linux the operating system uh well the, the kernel linux itself uh could not give a fuck the distributions mostly don't care or at least mostly don't enforce that now most of them will include by default some kind of auto updating system but they don't force it on you like microsoft does uh and in fact if if you're being forced to take updates in linux it's usually your dude named ben who is understandably judging the capability of their user well the severity of the code violation right that's yeah it's the the severity of the bug but also uh, a dude named ben who is working in a software shop may say okay you know i need you guys to apply this update uh by next week and if you don't apply it by next week then i'm gonna come and bug you about it again a dude named ben working in a bank or a, a military installation or somewhere where the users are of lower technical knowledge and the data is Uh, much more sensitive might come up and say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and remotely install this on your machine. And then you have a windows situation. And, and, and that's perfectly fine because the person who understands the situation is the one deciding whether or not productivity trumps getting an update. And the main reason why I rail against the Microsoft solution to that is because they take a one size fits all and a, approach to this and every single time that microsoft has an update that they deem to be important that means that every user in the world regardless of what they're using their computer for regardless of whether the update even applies to them regardless of whether they're controlling nuclear missiles or they're playing a facebook game everybody is going to get the update pushed and is going to reboot because of it I really hope they're not doing the nuclear missiles with Windows 10. God, I hope not. I, I No, they're not doing win- nuclear missiles with Windows 10. I happen to know that a lot of them are still running Windows XP. <laughs> Which they just 
released an update on due to all these chip <laughs> that, errors, which is the that was a pretty that severe, scared me too. Yeah, that was a pretty severe problem. And and actually props go to Microsoft for recognizing that enough people are still using the versions of Windows that even I will say you need to not be using XP. Right. And a lot of them are like ATM machines, but, which are also like, are you yeah, kidding that's, me? That's the thing that is that these this software has gone into a lot of places where frequent updates are not a good idea. And at least, you know, with Windows 10, especially uh, Microsoft doesn't really care whether it's an ATM and whether or not somebody is actually performing a transaction at that moment. They're going to say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, you didn't click on this dialogue because it's off screen. You're rebooting. I I I was going to say we do get the dialogue. I mean, I've never been forced to reboot in the middle of doing anything under Windows 10. The little thing comes up and says updates are ready. We'll reboot in the middle of the night. But if it's an ATM, are you are you going to ask that? If it's an ATM, then then yes, theoretically, the IT guy for the bank is supposed to be the one who gets the dialogue and does that. But if he misses it, do you think that the I mean, the dialogue is probably not even going to be shown on the screen that's displayed in the front of the ATM. And do you want (laughs) the user to be clicking? okay? I would love to be at an ATM when that little screen popped up. Like, would you like to get into the inner workings of this machine? Well, there's Uh, plenty of pictures out there on the Internet of of the update dialogue popping up on some embedded system. You know, some of my favorites are like, uh, you know, Windows requires an update popping up over the list of arrivals on an airport display terminal. You know, or on the display that's showing your vitals in a hospital. These kind of fun things that uh, you might not want the machine to go down for. But I'm torn as a regular user, you know, looking at the regular user, looking at, you know, my parents, something like that. I like the idea that the machines are going to update themselves. I know that could cause some problems, but if there are two basic choices for you and one of them is, you know, your average computer user, either they're going to be forced to take these updates and allegedly it's going to make their computer safer, although we know it could bork it when it puts it in. Or the other side of that is it's never going to update because people are complacent and they go, yeah, my computer seems like it's fine. I'm never going to check for updates. I'm never going to update this machine at all. And then you have these issues where the problems are so bad that the computer is going to get owned. You're going to get hacked. You're going to have all sorts of problems. There has to be, if you had to choose one of these two scenarios, which do you go with? Well, I'm going to dodge the question. Let me just pick apart your rhetorical device here because it's the one that everybody uses when trying to defend updates. Uh, I'm going to, I, we need to separate. Uh, I'm going to create two different classes of updates. There are security updates. These are things where your computer is in danger if you don't take the update. I don't have any fundamental philosophical problem against security updates. And there are going to be cases where a security vulnerability is found and it is especially if it's if it's wormable if it's something that can cause your computer to be infected with no action required on your part if it results in remote codex or uh, remote code execution or elevation of privileges these are bad and they are things that need to be corrected and it's unfortunate that it happens but even in the ideal world where people test their operating systems uh, not that we live there that would still happen which is why it is never and and please please do not put words into my mouth i am not recommending anybody shut off updates entirely because these need to happen security 
is important. And uh, because software is so incredibly complex, it is impossible to to release for humans to release anything that has been created in today that doesn't have some kind of vulnerability that will be found later. So it is important to install and to have security updates. Now, let me talk about the other class of updates. These are feature updates. They are uh, occasionally performance updates. They are uh, occasionally there are updates that exist for no other purpose than uh, because the programmer doesn't want their code out there to be doing something. And and there, I mean, this is a class of updates which may even be things that the user doesn't want. When I was, uh, yeah, let, let me give some examples of the things that, that Microsoft has, uh, when I was there at least, considered uh, an important update. And understand that important in Windows update speak means we are going to force this update on you. It's going in the same channel as security updates, and it's probably going to force an operating system reboot. There was, uh, when I was there, uh, there was one point where a version of Microsoft Word had uh, a font, uh, Wingdings, I think. Uh, that font had a character in it that was a swastika. And there was a, a political correctness scandal where somebody discovered no. this and started putting out. And Microsoft released an important update, an update that forces your system to reboot in order to replace that font to remove the swastika. There was a, a, a bug in a, a piece of software. Have you ever heard of Windows Live Writer? No, it doesn't sound familiar. It was a piece of software that was big when in the age of blogs. So this is about 2005. It, it was actually one of the best ways to modify a blog. There was a bug which would cause LiveWriter to occasionally lose your post if you tried to upload as a draft to certain blogger sites. That became an important update, which meant everybody who had LiveWriter installed was going to get pushed the update as if it was security, and it would, again, try to reboot your system. One that uh, I am still dealing with to this day, uh, I'm, I'm running, well, I'm running Windows 8, so you can call me a curmudgeon if you'd like. You're a curmudgeon. Uh, but Windows 8 came with Internet Explorer 11. It's not uninstallable. Internet Explorer 11 came with a built-in version of Adobe Flash. Again, not technically uninstallable, but because even if I never launch Internet Explorer, I Flash is such a security vulnerability factory that I just didn't want it there. So I actually went into the registry, and and I don't recommend anybody do this at home because you will fuck up your computer if you try to do what I do. Uh, but I went into the registry, and I completely removed all traces of Flash. It can't run. It can't go. Even if something gets on my hard drive, tries to launch Flash, it will break. It will throw an error. It will not run. Great. I'm happy with that. However, every single month when I take updates for this Windows 8 system, I get a pop-up that says important security update to be installed, an update for Adobe Flash. If I ever take that update, it's going to ruin all of my hacking and reinstall Flash on my system. Yes. yes. But it's an important security update. And if you haven't gone in and destroyed Flash from your system, then you would have a really buggy security hole version of Flash. And this update is important because each one of the updates patches a security hole. And you know that 
you're you're only suddenly only vulnerable to the other 40,000 in that particular piece of software. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why in that same vein why I hate Synology. I know a lot of people like them. They make network attached storage devices, routers and stuff like that. But I had an old Synology NAS and as the updates came, although I think they've changed this now, so maybe they've listened to people. When the updates would come, they were throwing all of this operating system, all of these updates across all of their network attached storage devices, even though they were introducing things. And in my case, it was an old uh, 417 DJ, something like I forget the exact model number at this particular point, but it was an old device. And in Synergy and all of their great foresight decided that they wanted to throw a new indexing server service onto all of these network attached storage devices, which I'm sure it works great on the higher horsepower, high CPU, high RAM devices. But basically, again, it's what what you're describing is the feature updates, the updates that exist for for the software developer. Yes. And what the feature did for my system was maxed out the CPU and wouldn't even let me get in. It took, let's just put it this way. If anybody's familiar with using Telnet, you know, whatever you're using, uh, Putty or whatever to get into it, it would take like a minute and a half just to get to the login screen to come up. You know, you type the username, it would take like a minute to put the password in because the box was basically so overloaded with this indexing service that you had to go in. I found somebody had a suggestion on how to uh, get the indexing software taken off. And it's actually one of the biggest pages on randomthoughts.com, my blog site. One of the most accessed pages is a page I put up a couple of years ago on how to fix these old Synergy devices. And you, you blog too? You do everything, Darren. I know. I'm taking over the No Agenda stream. What can I say? At the No Agenda art generator, the No Agenda stream. You're putting up two podcasts on it. Is there anything you don't well, do? Well, we do two podcasts. Then we do the Thursday pre-show. This Sunday, if you're, this will get up before Sunday. We're doing the Sunday pre-show. So it's, uh, we're the hardest working, well, the third hardest working person on the No Agenda stream. I won't put myself above Adam or John. Not quite yet. It'll take a while. But but you will put yourself above me. Oh, yeah. Easily. I mean, you don't like work. That's, that's no. <laughs> with the Synergy thing, though. You're right. This was a feature update which brought a device to its knees and made it completely unusable. And I know that's an extreme example, but that's, I think, the perfect example because it's throwing something on the device that's not only just an annoyance and not just something that's just slightly unwanted. It's something that took the performance of the device and totally trashed it. And that just that just shows you how these software companies work. Well, well, no, we have to put the same software in every NAS. It would be too much work to go, oh, are you one of these devices from like three years ago? Maybe we don't want this big intrusive indexing service, but that's not how these software companies work, is it? Well, software companies and, and the developers are uh, like they're, they're people. And as people, they are selfish. And, uh, you know, of, with regards to putting the same system on uh, same software on every system, uh, of course, a developer is going to want that because uh, it all has to do with how I you remember how I said that testing is the hardest part of software. The main re- th- reason that that's so, so difficult is uh, because of a concept known as the testing matrix. And uh, what that is, is if you have uh, widget A that can be in three different states and widget B that can be in three different states and widget C 
can be in four different states, uh, then the total number of states in your entire system is three times three times four, which is brain gone 36. <laughs> A uh, lot. So, it, yeah. So it, the, the no, and, and if you have widgets A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and each of them has a certain number of states, the total number of states that your entire system can be in goes out of control very quickly. And that is the whole reason why the testing is very difficult. It, it's time consuming to test every possible state. So a big part of developing software is trying to reduce the number of configurations that you have to test in order to keep costs down. Right. And one of the ways that you reduce the number of configurations that users will encounter is to remove configurations that users are on. Whenever you come up with a new version, the, the result is when you come up with a new version, uh, programmers will, well, uh, you know, to start programmers are of course, you know, selfish and vain like people and lazy. And when, when they work very hard, as hard as programmers do on a, uh, a shiny new feature. They're like, you know, I put in six weeks trying to make this feature perfect. And I just know everybody's going to love it. And the worst thing you can possibly do to that programmer's ego is if nobody ever uses it and updates provide uh, an incredible ego boost because you know that all users are going to now be forced to use the new thing, which means that you get your ego stroked a little bit more. Now take that combined with the reduction of the testing matrix, because if you know for sure that you are going to be able to force old version or new versions onto people, you never have to test the old version. Huge cut off of your testing matrix. And for that reason, software updates people, the, the rhetoric will always be, oh, it makes you safer. Uh, and, and that actually does apply to the security updates, right. but it doesn't apply to feature updates. And, and both types, one of the primary reasons why you're being pushed to software update is not for your benefit, although you might enjoy the feature in a small percent. If, 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 if they're not completely screwing up the feature, then a percentage of users will like the new feature. That happens. But not everybody, as you pointed out, it won't be good for everybody. But that software is going to be pushed to you anyway, not for your benefit, but for the developer's benefit. Well, it sounds like you like the concept that Drupal, which is a content management system that's used for a bunch of different websites. And I mean, when you're talking about updates, you have to talk about Drupal a little bit because there have been multiple Drupal Geddens, which when a site like Drupal or WordPress that are used on so many sites online, when somebody finds a flaw now, when somebody finds a security problem, the real problem is it's not hard to figure out who's running Drupal or who's running WordPress with a very simple bot. So it's not like you figure, hey, well, I'm safe. Nobody will know I'm using Drupal. It's like, no, they're hitting every domain that they can find, sending it whatever query that needs to do to figure out what you're running. And then they're hacking your site. So that's a bad thing. But they're the overall yeah. so concept. That, that's a case in in which it is in the user's benefit to take the update quickly. You have to. You definitely have to yeah. if you're security, online. Yeah. And the security updates. The one thing I will say about Drupal that I like, besides the fact that the updating process is still a little bit. Um, if you're running a website out there, if you're thinking about using one of these content management systems, the biggest difference between something like Drupal and something like WordPress. Now, and I know there's others like Joomla and a bunch of other systems that I haven't used. Um, and WordPress allows its main core to be updated 
by itself, which again, kind of like the Windows thing could be good when it's a security update that it comes in. The bad part about that could be things could get borked and your website might go offline if something really bad happens. Drupal, on the other hand, the core of Drupal, which would be like the main operating system where everything else is just, you know, different modules that you add, the core part of Drupal still cannot be updated automatically. So you still have to go download the new code or, you know, download it to your server and do this manually. So that's that the, is so 1993. I know it's it's absolutely horrible in the fact that that's why a lot of these sites don't get updated quickly. I again, I understand both aspects. They're going well. We don't want probably you know whether it's just too hard for them to figure out how to do this, which I don't know why. Because if WordPress can do it, I would think Drupal would be able to do it. But I understand the concept, maybe that you don't want to update the core because you might crash somebody's website. But with that said, when you're dealing with security updates, quicker would definitely be better. But besides, well, not even besides, although I don't know if I've yeah. ever seen a core ha- update. Having a mechanism to apply security updates fast is a critical thing in a- anything connected to the internet. You have to assume that if a vulnerability is announced at 8 a.m., by 8.15, somebody is exploiting it. <laughs> yes. And the problem is most of these exploits now, in the good old days, these exploits were if you had a website up, and you were using Drupal or WordPress, and one of these exploits came up, the worst thing that usually happened was the front page of your website said, ha ha, you got owned. And now that's not the case. Now they're stealing data. They're using your server to mine for crypto. They're doing all sorts of things that you may not see. You may not even understand that it's going on. So your site can be hacked. If nobody is paying attention to this, your site can be hacked for a year without you knowing when i was a young whippersnapper hacking websites in the 90s the reason why you would hack a site is is for street cred it was for fun it was to see how everything worked it was to see if you could do it it was exploratory it was it was for fun it was just to to mess around and most hackers weren't malicious uh in fact the the only really bad ones were the ones doing it because they wanted to do damage and you're right that's the kind of thing that appeared immediately hacking today is not like that most hacking today is caused for greed for corporate espionage for stealing information and these are not the kind of things you tell people about quickly no you want to hide them and i used to do a bunch of work before i lost vision in the one eye doing web work with a lot of these drupal sites and stuff so my email address is still attached to sites that I constantly still get the, there are updates available. And I'm just like, don't you people ever do updates? It, I, it scares me that people are so lax with the security. So if you're running one of these Drupal sites and you're out there, you'd have to keep up with the security updates or your site's going to get screwed. But the one thing Drupal does well is when you go into their page, which shows you because Drupal has a core like your operating system and they have modules which are basically like programs you would add to your operating system when you go into their updates page it'll show you for every for the core and for every module you're running if it's current it shows you green if there's an update but it's not a security update it shows yellow and if it's a security update it shows red meaning they're at least giving you the opportunity if you don't want these extra things we've added to these modules because they're they're not security updates, they're just feature updates, 
you're safe. You don't have to update them. They give you that option. So in that, they actually do all, well. All I got from that is that they're discriminating against colorblind sysadmins. <laughs> well, and that's you. And together we have one good, no, not even one good eye. But that's a different rant. But I'm sure there's a way to change that and show you, you know, obviously I, I haven't dived, delved into the, uh, the, the different options no, we, we have. We, trust me, we will be doing an episode on accessibility. That's a different rant. Yes, it is. And it's something I think that uh, we both have a decent amount of things to rant about. But in that one case, Drupal's doing something good. And that's probably sounds like something you would like to see in Windows updates that tells you, hey, do you want this update? It's not a security update. Uh, you don't have to take it if you don't want to. Uh, then I guess the question then becomes, what is Microsoft really getting? And we're kind of picking on them, I guess. Uh, but like you said, they want everybody to be on the same version. Well, I, I only pick on them because they deserve well, it. They all deserve it to a certain amount. I mean, I used and I, I hardly use my 2009 MacBook Pro anymore. And I just give the year because of the fact that it's been two or three years now. Even though it's a fully functioning laptop, T 2009 was more than two or three years ago. No, but it was two or three years ago that, that they that was stopped. 10 years ago. Right. But two or three years ago, they stopped allowing operating system updates to the machine, which is something that blows my mind. People talk about Apple like it's the greatest fucking thing in the world. I can get a 10 year old Windows box and install Windows 10 on it. I mean, it may be slow. Clearly, clearly your Apple Kool-Aid is wearing off. You are a terrible <laughs> Apple user if you're not buying the newest thing every year. Why have you not gone out and spent $35,000 on the latest cheese grater? I don't know because I think that's a little too much. But With I don't- $1,000 monitor stand. That's important. Yeah, the $1,000 monitor stand. Well, no, yeah, $999. Don't want to over overestimate <laughs> that to $1,000. The 900 I, I apologize for my hyperbole. Yes, I believe it was MSI that already has come out with an advertisement showing their 4K monitor or whatever. Maybe it was an 8K 999 monitor. 99 plus California state sales tax, so it's going to be about 1300. The MSI monitor was great. They were showing it it was like 1299 and then it was next to the stand for 999 with we come with this, 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 this and the stand and then the, the Apple of course it's like just the stand. For nine ninety nine, or you can actually get the monitor with the stand for twelve nine. I think it was MSI. I thought that was great marketing, and we'll be talking about marketing yeah. in a, a very uh, near future episode. Hopefully, with Phone Boy joining us as the as the resident marketing expert that can we can talk about some of that stuff because I thought that was genius when it came to that to the pricing thing of a thousand dollars stand. I still can't really wrap my head around it, but I still can't wrap my head around why this laptop which is still a reasonably quick laptop. I can install Windows 10 on this Apple from 10 years ago on the MacBook Pro. It works fine. It's peppy. Why I can't install Apple's latest operating system, and I know I'm not getting security updates to the old one. Say what you want about Microsoft. I can't say Apple is better. At this point, seeing that they totally are disinterested in doing any kind of operating system updates for a machine, after seven years or so, whatever I had it before that happened, I, that sucks. It's all about the test matrix. How much do you think that Microsoft would get to be, uh, you know, have time to create new features for Windows 10 to force updates on you if they were still having to constantly patch bugs in Windows 95, 98, 2000 and XP? Well, I'm not asking them to patch which, the old which are operating, all operating systems, systems that, that aren't getting you're not getting most of your patches for any of those operating systems. You shouldn't be running them. 
Right. And so why are you forcing me to not be able to update to the latest operating system? It's not like they just abandoned the operating system version I was on for that MacBook. They don't even allow you to put the new version on. Well, um, just Apple things. Yeah, it sucks. Thanks, Apple. Thanks for the overpriced fucking doorstop. Well, I, like I said, the the Apple <laughs> way is that you should be paying money for a new overpriced doorstop. Right. On the bright side, I could just put uh, Windows on it. I think this the one will still it'll run Linux as well. So that's what I'll end up doing with the laptop. I mainly used it. The uh, you know I love the one program from Apple that I loved was Logic Pro X for recording multi-track music. Beyond that, at this point, uh, there's nothing in the Apple ecosystem that I think is better than anything out there on Windows or even Linux. And I would be off the Windows ecosystem if I wasn't so tied into the Adobe programs for audio and video and and for photos you know photoshop they still don't have yeah. a linux version and, which i'm how surprised are the updates on those oh my god that's just as bad when it comes to the adobe stuff did you see the thing recently that they're now forcing you to use the latest version or there's some kind of like copyright bullshit that's going uh, on I, i'm I, I don't have experience with this. I, I've not, I do not run a single piece of Adobe software that I've paid for. You know, I always do update it because I get it cheap. I have a friend who's a teacher who has no interest in having the Adobe software. But if you have a teacher's email address, they give you a better deal. You could once a year, Amazon runs a great deal for like 179 bucks for the year to access all of Adobe software. And for me, it's worth it because I use it on a daily basis. So that seems fairly reasonable considering I think if you're not a teacher and you're paying Amazon, uh, you're paying Adobe the full price, it's five, 50 bucks a month. So 600 bucks a year. So under 200, I can deal with 600 bucks a year. I understand why people might not want to stay on that and they might want to use an older version. And the fact that they're now making that hard to do or come up with alternate means of, of acquiring it that doesn't involve paying money to Adobe. Oh, piracy. We're back to that subject. Well, that certainly happens. Yes. I, I, I'm not condoning it and I'm certainly not admitting to it, but it happens because when, when you to create a product and then you charge too much for it, people will find a way. And I'm not even saying that's too much for Adobe. Uh, I, I have used this software and I agree that uh, for the purpose for which it was built, it is extremely powerful and useful software, as evidenced by the fact that you feel like your operating system choice is determined by the need to run this software. Right. Which is the main, you know, I run a lot of stuff, but most people on a daily basis, you're using a browser, which is nobody's paying for browsers. That's all free stuff that you can download. You can download, you may, people may be paying for Microsoft Office. At this point, I don't know why. After using LibreOffice for a while, I don't see the reason why anybody is paying for the Microsoft version. So it's a uh, rare inertia. Well, yeah, I guess if you've been using it, you're used to using it and you're lazy and you don't want to switch or you don't know that it exists, which I guess is a big part for a lot of people as well. But Adobe is the one piece of software that I happily pay for because I use it all the time. It just works. And the forced updates on that point didn't bother me because if you're still paying for the subscription, why wouldn't you go to the latest one? If it does have feature improvements that you want security, because it might make your NAS run dog slow. <laughs> well, that's true. As of yet, Adobe hasn't had a problem like that for me. Maybe they run into that. I go back to remember the first version of Photoshop that I bought. 
was, I think, like twelve hundred dollars. And this is going back to like nineteen ninety five or something like that. And so I understand why you would expect that to work forever. But as we're finding out, software doesn't work forever, even though if you think you're buying it, there's probably a whole nother episode on the whole buying versus rental thing. Planned obsolescence. Yes. Obsolescence and planned obsolescence, as we are just talking about with the Mac operating system. That Oh, your, your laptop's seven years old. Well, you can't install the new one. And, and, and not always planned with the the greed wringing your hands. I want to screw the user and force them to pay money. Like, like I discussed with the test matrix, a lot of the times, the reason why you plan for obsolescence of software is so you don't have to fucking test and patch old, old, old <laughs> versions of it all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if companies would make it easier and the software didn't bork your machine or it wouldn't run on the machine, I'm all for updates. I do go fully along with you that when you're getting an update and your machine is automatically rebooting itself. And a lot of times it could be a case where you left your machine on and it's doing something and an operating system update comes in. And if you're gone for a day or two and your machine's working happily, if that update comes in and it goes, you know, at nine in the morning, Hey, I'll be updating at midnight unless you tell me not to, and you're not there and your computer's doing something else. It doesn't care. You don't have to say, yes, go ahead and reboot. It tells you, it's kind of like I used to read all the books. Demo Dick Marchinko, a guy that created Seal Team Six, wrote a bunch of books and a lot of the it, fiction, allegedly. Uh, but a lot of the way he would get around his superiors not wanting him to do stuff was he's like, I'd go into their office late on a Friday afternoon after they were gone, leave a note on their desk, unless otherwise directed. I'm doing this this weekend. And, uh, you know, they didn't get the message until too late. This is the same thing Windows is doing to you now, which is going, you know, unless otherwise directed, I'm uh, going to reboot your machine at midnight. And if you don't see the, that. The, uh, yeah, you, I, okay. You open up the can of worms, uh, the, the timing of updates, how up it's, uh, it, it's bad enough that they, they've decided to force you to do it, but, Trigger alert. but putting the, the timers on every, I, okay. So, I, I mean, we again another conversation that we had uh, uh with coworkers about so on one side you have users who we will call them the enemy at least in windows 8 we actually had uh, one of the pillars of the windows 8 vision was putting the user in control and in practice we never fucking allowed that the users are morons the users don't know what to do with the control they're fucking idiots <laughs> you give them control they're going to mess up their system and uh Okay, you can I reach mean, Ryan at Ryan at grumpyoldbens.com. From the perspective, from the perspective of of Microsoft, here's here's the ultimate problem. When somebody doesn't patch their machine, their machine will get a virus. Their machine will start to work poorly. Their machine will break. Their machine will be fucked up. Uh and even worse, their machine these days will participate in a botnet and make the entire internet worse. And who gets blamed? Not usually the person who wrote the virus, because, of course, that person, you know, while they're guilty, they're also anonymous. So it's hard to rage at them. And who else gets blamed? Well, usually the user who didn't install the patch doesn't get blamed, although we're getting better at shaming people for stupid reasons like that. But really, if if a 100,000 Windows computers get owned because the users shut off updates and those computers become a DDoS botnet that takes down a website who gets blamed microsoft does 
And so if you're Microsoft, I really understand that you're like, okay, you know, it's not enough that we developed these security updates. We also have to get them out as quickly as possible. And in, in an ideal Microsoft world, every user will drop what they're doing the moment an update is released and reboot their system to install it right now. And obviously there's some compromise and, and the, the, if you don't tell us not to, we're going to restart your computer. That is, that is their compromise. I mean, the the timing of updates in in general, and I'll I'll go ahead and pick on another Microsoft product because they're Microsoft. I I like picking on them. I I have a, an Xbox one. Um, I purchased it a while ago and I don't do a lot of console gaming anymore, but I still have it. And every once in a while, my, my brother, or one of my friends is like, Hey, you know, how do you feel about t- spending a couple hours online? Fine. But I boot the thing about once a month. You know, the interesting thing is that the Xbox team releases a patch about once a month. So what does this mean? Well, what it means is that every single time that I turn on my system, because for the first time this month, I have decided that right now is the moment that I would like to indulge in some escapism. I have 25 minutes that I want to just go <laughs> play a couple levels of a game and go. No. You, you need an no. update. So what Microsoft has decided and what a lot of companies will decide when they do forced updates is they have chosen a time to apply the updates and the method that Xbox uses, which is used by a lot of places, is let's go ahead and pick the one time out of the entire month. This this device is using power and sitting in standby the whole month. And I have not run this for 25 days. And they have chosen, they they're not updating the background. They're not updating when I'm asleep or when I'm not at the thing. They have decided that the moment that they want to lock my computer down to download 10 gigabytes and apply the update and basically tie up my whole Xbox for 20 minutes running an update, the one time they have decided that it's right to force that on me is the only time in the entire month that they can (laughs) confirm for sure that I want to use the device. I know the feeling PlayStation three, the same exact way. I haven't turned mine on in three years. I should turn it on to see how long it takes it to update. What what you should do is just turn it on once a month and walk the fuck away because <laughs> that is the only way that it will actually be available for use when you want to use it. I don't know how many times when I've been like, you know, I'd really like to just play a couple levels of this game because, you know, my brother and I, who he's, he's a father and I've got a hectic schedule and we both were like, okay, I've got. 45 minutes and we want to just play a level through this game because we just want to chat and bullshit and have some fun. And then we got to go. And when I lose 20 fucking minutes of that, because this <laughs> piece of shit wants to update on me. Yeah. How dare you think you can play a game while they want to update? I mean, the game uh, and, will and run then to, to add, to add insult to injury. What the Xbox, it it's not just forcing an update because I turned it on. Uh, I think I think the reason why it didn't update when I wasn't there was because it has to throw up a confirmation dialogue. That confirmation dialogue <laughs> says, would you like to update or would you like to start your Xbox offline? Well, the Xbox is fucking useless offline. You can't use any of your digital library because you can't log in. You can't play multiplayer games when you're offline. You can't. It's, well, I, I want to use my fucking system. So I have to update or it won't let me online. 
Coming up on Grumpy Old Ben, subscription services and programs in the cloud. I got a little excited about that one. Well, it's rightfully so, because I've run into that all the time with the gaming console. And again, this is the PS3, same thing as the Xbox One. You don't use it for a while. You turn it on. And for me, I was using the Xbox, uh, the uh, PlayStation 3 for a while as a device that would stream, uh, you know, do the, uh, you know, Roku type thing. And so you could do your street video streaming and the same thing, you know, I turned it on and it's like, well, we need to update. It's like, really, before I can watch a program? I mean, I'm not doing anything that should require an yes. update. You Let's know. play the update game. Yes. And that's pretty much all it turned into, which is why I haven't turned it on in three years and don't really don't really miss it. I'm much happier running my TV, uh, running, playing the stuff that's on my NAS in the basement is now much easier using a little free. Uh, well, I got it to review a little amazon uh, not amazon a little android box you know which they sell for like 30 bucks now that just can stream anything you want from the nas updates not a problem you only do it when you want to i've never once had a problem with one of these little android tv boxes making you update it's all just if you want to update it you can go and look for updates if it's working fine they never push a single one so that i do appreciate because i've never once went I want to watch TV. And it went, well, can you wait like 45 minutes? And the argument can be made that there's probably uh, vulnerabilities that aren't being patched if you're not taking updates. But uh, the lesson that I take from that actually is that it's a much simpler box. And the less complexity that you have, the less bugs you have. That is a reality of software. The fewer bugs you have, the fewer vulnerabilities you have. So uh, maybe... If we started going back to single use devices uh, and Internet of Things is kind of like this, which only do one thing and do it well, then we wouldn't have to push updates so often. Well, and speaking of opening a can of worms before we call this episode complete, you have to talk about Internet of Things and the fact that these devices are going out into the wild, whether it's your refrigerator, a lot of these smart speakers, which at least I think the smart speakers get a lot of updates. But there's a lot of these dumb devices that are being thrown out into the world that are connecting to your network via your Wi-Fi hotspot in your house. And they are never updating the software because it's a refrigerator or it's a whatever. And there are exploits in there. And this is how the world's going to come down. This is how the Internet's going to come down. Your your refrigerators are going to get you. The explanation for how this happens is going back to the earliest point I made about programmers being lazy. Uh, programmers and the the entire software development industry has trained itself to uh, oh don't worry too much about testing testing isn't that big a part of development because you can always push out and and update but then when you release one of these devices you don't have uh, the safety blanket of being able to update every couple of minutes you you'll push out a device and be like oh it's fine right but you've you've built this device in a culture of people who don't fully test their shit. And let's understand how crazy it is. There are Wi-Fi light bulbs. If an IoT device were created by a software developer from 1986, there would never be a vulnerability or even a bug in it. That shit would just start up and run forever. It also would have cost more and it would have taken a lot longer to develop, but there would not be bugs because that was the culture back then. My computer's completely patched or Bemrose, but I have five of these stupid Wi-Fi fucking light bulbs and well, now I'm in trouble. Well, uh, I, if you're the one who installed the Wi-Fi fucking <laughs> light bulbs in your house, I don't have a lot of sympathy. 
I don't think people realize the capabilities of these little, I, mean, I think they, well, it's just a light bulb, but it's connecting to Wi-Fi. I mean, that's just so I can control it. It's like, if you can control something via Wi-Fi. I, yeah, I, I, there, you know what? There's a device on the wall in the room near the switch or it near the light bulb <laughs> called the that switch. I use to control my light bulbs. It's called a switch. Yes. This is new technology. I, I, I'll have to re- investigate remote this. Remote control of my light bulbs is, it, it, it'll, Okay. I, I, yeah. Okay. I can pull out my phone and control the light bulb so that it turns on when I walk in the screen. Well, you know what I can do? I can push a thing on a wall and control the light bulb so that it turns on when I walk into the room. You're not turning light bulbs on and off in rooms you're not in. So the switch is exactly where it needs to be. Why do you need this? Convenience. I think Internet of Things, uh, we're, we may have to stow that rant because there's <laughs> there's a lot more to talk about there. And that's going to be a future grumpy old Ben's episode. There's one, one more topic that uh, with regards to updates that I just have to bring up because I've got, I've got more rant. Uh, I mean, I've always got more rant. We, we shouldn't let that stop us from finishing the episode, but uh, I want to call this one, the reboot problem. So I, I run two computers right now. One of them is a Debian server downstairs. And one of them is a windows eight desktop upstairs. And uh, I run updates on both of them. But uh, the funny thing about it is that while this Windows 8 demands that I reboot at least once a month on uh, on the second Tuesday of the month, the the thing that, that a lot of people will use the word patch for some reason, but I call reboot Tuesday uh, <laughs> because that's what it is. Uh, it is the, the moment when everything on your desktop needs to be completely thrown away and you start with a fresh slate, no matter what you were working on. The Debian box downstairs. Now, admittedly, I'm not using it as a desktop, so it's a different mechanism. But I haven't rebooted that in eight months. I am applying updates. I update packages all the time because packages come down from upstream. But for some reason, Linux has figured out how to apply an update to a non-kernel piece of software without forcing the entire system to reboot. And this is this is an argument I got into uh, at at Microsoft when I was there over and over again, and and actually it uh, it is ultimately the reason why I have chosen not to move forward to Windows 10. It is something that I always referred to as the reboot problem in Windows. Obviously, okay. So if you're not familiar with the way software works, there is there's two main layers of execution in the software. There's the kernel. And then there's user mode software. The kernel is your device drivers. It is your your scheduler, the thing that controls threads, the thing that can, interacts with your devices, the thing that controls memory, all the things that are uh, deep under the hood that must exist for it to be a computer. And then there's user space, which the, I mean, there's some blurry things with things like user mode drivers, but the main thing in user space is all your programs. Uh, you, you have an application that runs, uh, then it's in user space and right. Things that Linux can totally has, stop without making your computer stop. Yeah. And, and the, the big advantage is, uh, once something is loaded into the kernel for the most part, it's there until you reboot your system, changing things in the kernel, uh, because the, if, if you ever try to unload most things in the kernel, if you try to unload them, your system stops functioning at all. And so in general, in order to patch something in the kernel, you have to reboot. That's acceptable. In fact, that's even true for the most part. Now, now again, there's there's user mode device drivers, and there's also uh, kernel mode uh, dynamic libraries. But for the most part, if you need to patch something in the kernel, you have to reboot. 
Uh, that's true in Linux and that's true in Windows. The user space, however, everything in user space runs in something called a process, which is uh, at its simplest form of process is one window that's up on your screen. Um, it's not quite like that, but right. If you've never done this, and I know there are some people like listening here that aren't the total grumpy old Ben, uh, not the dude named Ben's. If you're on a Windows machine, control, alt, delete, task manager, look, go to processes and see everything that is now currently running on your machine. I think yep. most people are going to go, what the hell is all this? Everything listed in task manager is in user space. If it has a name like Chrome.exe, it's it's a user space process. Now, the thing about a process is you can stop a process and it doesn't take the operating system down because the kernel is still running. They're completely separate. They're separate spaces. You have the ability to complete it. And in fact, uh, you know, this is really important if there's a crash or a hang because you can use task manager to completely destroy a process which might corrupt internal data in the process if it's poorly coded and, and, not, and saving incorrectly, but you are not going to damage your operating system by killing a process. And again, there's some that blur the lines because somebody was dumb coding. Here's where I finally get to the point of my rant. Things that run in user space and are processes. The biggest one on most systems is called explorer.exe, which is your file manager. It's your taskbar. It's your shell. Uh, it's your, your start menu. Uh, it's your start screen. If you are unlucky enough to be running windows eight, that is a user mode process, but the way that it was written by the, the team at windows who wrote it was such that it has fingers all through the whole, it's the largest and most complicated single component in windows. It's actually more complicated than the kernel. And it is designed in such a way. It was originally designed in such a way that it does a whole lot of work when you boot your computer and sticks fingers into all parts of the operating system. And task manager won't even let you do this by the way, because it's hard coded not to let you. But if you've ever managed to crash explorer.exe, I have a lot of things on your computer might stop working to the point where you have to reboot in order to get your computer working again. Well, yeah, everything disappears. The windows, you know, the, your, where you have the start menu, everything yeah. kind of yeah. goes, oh, gone. And it is a user mode process. It would be possible for the Explorer team to write that in such a way that it was capable of fully reinitializing and coming back without destroying everything else on the computer. Because the, the reason why a reboot is so disruptive to a computer is that, uh, among other things, you are forced to close every process on your system. And if some of those are open and have data that you haven't saved or have data that can't be saved, like, uh, well, uh, the big thing for me is often uh, things like command prompts where the back buffer is almost never saved. Right. Uh, you know, the, but, but even if you have a documents open that you just haven't hit control S and they don't auto save because your word processor is crap, then forcing a close down makes you lose work. Everybody has had experience of they've lost something important on their system because programs were for closed down. And the largest and most complicated piece of all of windows is a user mode process, which is Explorer. And it would be effort on the part of the Explorer team to change up Explorer such that it could run without forcing a reboot every time you wanted to update it. But that's not that important. And the, the rationale that was actually given to me was, well, lots of other things in Windows already require a reboot. So every time that you update, <laughs> you're probably rebooting every time anyway. And so why should we put in a lot of effort to make it so that you can reboot this system 
when some other component somewhere is probably going to force a reboot anyway. And what you've got there is the tragedy of the commons. You you have just taken if if that is the rationale everybody uses, then nobody is ever going to put forth any effort to make their programs be able to survive and restart and update without having to restart your system. And the, the culture on Linux has always been, well, if you have to restart a service, then you you can you can change out your internet on Linux because it's just a user mode driver or a plugin without taking out the kernel. But on Windows, everybody's like, eh, it's hard. So let's just force reboots on everyone. To be fair, there are less reboots than there used to be. There are fewer. This is yes. But the last thing that I'll leave you with is it's not just explorer.exe. And and this one actually is is unforgivable in my opinion, because it's not even by any stretch part of the operating system. Microsoft Office, an update to any part of Office, to Word or Excel or PowerPoint or Access that nobody freaking ever uses. <laughs> if an update comes down for that, you have to reboot your system because it is so far in, ingrained. That's what I'll leave you with is this is this is an add-on program to your operating system. And because it happens to be Microsoft and it happens to use the Microsoft update system, the people in that application team have decided, well, let's just go ahead and mark this as important. Let's mark this as reboot needed. Microsoft earns my ire. And the reason why I can't go to Windows 10 is because they are paternalistic toward their users and they are so cavalier about saying what we want on your computer is more important than what you want and your productivity is not as important as our desire to update. And that is I I that that was actually the point at which I parted ways with the company, which is unfortunate because the paycheck was really fucking nice. But uh <laughs> and, and I, I would say just, Apple's not much different. Linux, obviously you're getting the full control over the as far as the forced reboots. It's not just the Windows machine. It's interesting. You see a lot of people when, uh, especially when running third party firmwares on routers, which are another thing. If you want to talk about updates, people should definitely understand that the home router that you have should probably you should look at that and update the firmware. if there are security up, uh, problems there, if there's security updates, that's your first line of anybody that's pinging your home address. That's what they're getting into. And maybe we need to get into that. A little bit further at some point, but I remember like DDWRT, one of the third party firmwares. A lot of times the software wasn't written perfectly. So after, you know, a few days, you would get this thing would start slowing down. The Wi Fi speeds would start getting wonky. So they built in the, oh, reboot <laughs> system <laughs> automatically every night at midnight, reboot. And it's like, that's not good. If you can come up with a way to execute a reboot such that you don't lose data, then that works. You know, one device that reboots all the damn time, and I don't worry too much about it, is my phone. Why? Because Android, for some reason, has figured out how to make it so you don't lose data when your shit has to reboot. Yeah, that's interesting. That is true. <laughs> Windows Windows has actually had something called the Reboot Manager in for uh, years. I think that it was installed in Vista, but nobody ever uses it because, eh, you can lose data, whatever. Well, you know, it's for your convenience. The more data you can lose, the better off you are. So I think I want to wrap up. I think I've, I, I definitely went uh, a little over steam on this one uh, off the rails uh, into cuckoo land. I was definitely the crackpot here. Well, we knew we knew you were going to be passionate about this. Uh, I just want to I, I want to cap this out with uh, I absolutely I, I am not 
advocating that people shut off updates. I security updates are important and for for the reasons you listed and for the reasons that you hear about every single day. The internet is a scary place and if you have a com- machine or computer or device that is connected to it, you need to be taking security updates. Uh what I will say is Microsoft, Apple, everybody who writes an app Try to separate updates that are for the benefit of the user from updates that are for the benefit of the developer. Because when you push feature updates that break my NAS, when you push feature updates that remove my swastikas from all my documents, <laughs> what you're doing is you're you're doing things for you and you're not doing them for me. You're not letting me as the user be in control and you're eroding my trust in your ability to push out updates. And if the user doesn't trust the company's updates are going to be worth their benefit, then they're not going to install updates. And then when you have a genuine security update, it's you're, you're going to have a percentage of people who don't install it. Oh my gosh, we didn't even talk about the, the Windows 10 update fuck up, did we? We did a little bit. The fact that it kind of borked everybody's machine and they realized that, uh, which, which is the downside of the automatic updates, is that they can fuck up your machine. In recent history, they did fuck up a lot of machines, which, of course, then is going to lead a lot of people to go to exactly what you just said. Well, I'm just going to turn automatic updates off and then I can do this when I want yeah. to. And that is a bad thing when it comes to security updates. And that that wasn't even the, the point I was making, though, uh, is if if you are trying to put out security updates and you legitimately fuck up, then, yeah, OK, fix your error and, and do it again. And And yes, that absolutely also will erode people's confidence in your updates. But the, I guess you know, I, I'm not here to preach to users about this other than to commiserate and get really, really angry so that you don't have to, because that's what we do on Grumpy Old Bins. We rant at the clouds so right. that you can just chuckle along and say, ha ha, you're right. But I will plead with software developers is don't always push the things that are for you and don't benefit the user. Give the user an option. Yes. Get rid of the bloat. Yes. Definitely get rid of the bloat. Or to to bring back a very old saying that long predates software, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But then it's for your convenience. You get more and it's better and we can push this down and you'll like it. And let me tell you, my Xbox sure is convenient for me. <laughs> it's a big doorstop when you want to use it. The one interesting thing, has Windows always done this where when the updates come out, they're not available to everybody? They have seemed to change a little bit to where they're rolling it out slowly to kind of, I think this is like the, the canary in a coal mine, that's, right? That That's not for the users. I mean, well, that, that is partly for the user, but it, yes, I'm sorry. You were going to make a point. Yeah. The, well, the canary in the coal mine, which is back in the days when uh, people were, well, they still do coal mining, but back in the days, one of the ways to test if there were dangerous poisonous gases were you brought a canary down with you. And if the canary dropped dead, you knew you had to get the hell out. And, and they have a, a staged rollout system that they've started to use for that. But you know why the staged rollout system was actually created back in the day? It, it, it was because of simple logistics. Even Microsoft did not have the bandwidth to push the same update out to every Windows user in the world at the same time. Right. Their data centers were literally melting down because they were trying to send everybody the update at once. And, and that didn't quite work. One thing I did notice, which was interesting to me, was that your computer automatically checking for updates as opposed to you going and pressing that check for updates button can give you different results. Meaning if you weren't yet on the rollout, if you weren't, that was a mistake. I, I hope that they learned from that particular mistake 
what happened there was uh, that uh, somebody, some genius at Microsoft decided that if somebody goes out and presses the check for updates button, then obviously they're a power user who wants the the slightly less stable, more uh, up to date you know, updates sooner, and right. puts them in an internal list that gets pushed the the less stable updates. Give and, me more. And that backfired badly. <laughs> Well, computers crash, people complain, and and that's no good, especially if you're doing, uh, and I get it. I mean, I use a personal PC, and that's a hell of a lot different than a company that's running, you know, 50 computers for all their employees and 50 computers bork at the same time is is a little more inconvenient than me having my one system. That's not to say, again, you don't do updates, but this is all in the hands of the people creating the updates to do them in a way that doesn't screw everybody, whether that'll happen or not. I don't quite know. We do have an executive producer for this episode, and we are once again honored and privileged to have Jay Finley, Sir Baron Von Walkman. Well, Sir Baron Von Walkman, he's got so many titles, they're hard to keep up. And I, I said, I, we have made him into the patron saint of all podcasts, and we appreciate the donation. If you want to donate to the show, you can go to grumpyoldbens.com. There's a donation button there, value for value. What you think you're getting out of the episode, feel free to pay it forward to us. And he did have a note with his donation, which said, excellent episode 10, boys, freedom, all caps and with extra ease. And the uh, and, and I thought it was a good episode. We talked about a lot of interesting things when it came to freedom of speech and how it's not, well, really free anymore. It, I, I really think that was one of our better episodes it was probably in the top 10 of every episode we've ever released so far we're getting better right episode 10 within the top 10 i get what you're doing there you're a funny yeah, guy but we're I getting am. better ranting at each other i think we're getting better uh knowing the pacing that we each are using I, and when it's time except to this episode where i didn't give you a chance for like a half hour while i was going off but go on but you're the microsoft guy i mean you worked in this industry so you have a lot more knowledge in this kind of stuff where i just have more questions on how a lot of this stuff works and it was i think an informative episode i hope the people listening thought it was an informative episode because it's again a lot of people don't think about this stuff these updates happen just in the dark. They don't even understand. A lot of people may not even understand their computers updating in the middle of the night. They just don't want to know why things look different on their computer and why some things may not be working anymore. Knowledge is power, my friend. So thank you again, Jay Finley. Uh, we really appreciate it. The, the feedback, uh, the money, of course, but also just the feedback and the kind words. That's, that's why we do this. Uh, it, it's therapy for us. But if you guys aren't listening, then uh, I might as well be talking to my cat. And honestly, the cat isn't that interested. So thank you for, for your donation. Thank you for your kind words. And uh, is, is that enough, Darren? You said that I had to say something here because if we can't let people know that if they donate, then I might become speechless for a minute. Right. That was anytime, anytime Sir Pembroke is speechless. I figured that may encourage people if they thought they could send in a couple of bucks and it would get you to stop talking. I mean, although if you would like that and you would like to make a donation in the Sir Bemrose Talks Less or the Darren Talks Less, feel free to put that in to the donation. We'll certainly take that into account. And maybe if enough comes in, there could be a whole Sir Bemrose. He gets like five words in the whole episode. He'd have to use them wisely. Yes, that's true. That's very true. So. Thank you for listening. Tell a friend, subscribe. That also helps a lot, even though you know we're not big fans of the Apple iTunes and all that kind of stuff. If you're using one of those things, 
and you can subscribe there. If you can rate the show there, all of that stuff helps to spread the word. That is the main thing at this point for the little podcast here that we've started. Uh, word of mouth is the biggest thing you can do to help us here on Grumpy Old Ben's help grow the audience, help get more ears so you can help your friends get a little bit more knowledge. So until next time, I am Darren O'Neill coming to you live from a bunker deep in the heart of middle America, just outside of Chicago, Illinois. And from a beautiful rainy day on America's left coast, where the California Zephyr is nowhere to be seen. (laughs) I'm Ryan Bemrose. Where's the Zephyr? (laughs) 